Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. When you think of a locked room mystery, these days, your first instinct might lead your brain to conjure up an image of the popular escape rooms that have popped up in cities across the country in the last few years. For those who haven't experienced an escape room, the premise is simple. You and some others are locked in a room and you have to solve a series of puzzles to be released from your mysterious circumstances. But escape rooms aren't all that related to the concept of locked room mysteries after all. Locked room mysteries are actually a subgenre of the mystery novel realm. Sometimes called the impossible crime mystery, locked room mysteries are defined as, quote, subgenre of detective fiction in which a crime, almost always a murder, is committed in circumstances under which it was seemingly impossible for the perpetrator to commit the crime or evade detection in the course of getting in and out of the crime scene. The crime in question typically involves a crime scene with no indication as to how the intruder could have entered or left. For example, a locked room. In these types of stories, the reader finds themselves trying to piece together the clues to answer the question of how such a heinous crime could be committed, with the victim seeming to have fallen prey to a perpetrator that has more or less vanished into thin air. It's enough to drive a person crazy, looking for rational explanations to a situation that seems more or less completely irrational. Which is why Ellen Greenberg's very real death in a locked room mystery has continued to baffle ever since she was found dead on her kitchen floor with dozens of stab wounds to the back of her head, her neck, and with the knife itself lodged into her chest, all while she was alone and in her locked apartment. Ellen Greenberg's death is no whodunit mystery waiting to be solved by the likes of Sherlock or the Scooby-Doo gang. This locked room mystery is as real as they come, even if the course of events seem to have been pulled straight from the pages of some forgotten detective mystery novel. At the heart of this case is one question, though. If Ellen Greenberg didn't kill herself, as the Philadelphia police have claimed since 2011, then who did? Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Greenberg was, to put it simply, the light of her parents' lives. Born on June 23, 1983, in a New York City hospital, she was the only child of Dr. Joshua and Sandra Greenberg. Joshua still works as a periodontist at his own practice in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, and Sandra, who goes by Sandy, works in the practice as a dental hygienist. Though she was born in New York, Ellen grew up in Pennsylvania, and the family eventually settled in Harrisburg, the state capital, in 1994 when Ellen was in middle school. Her mother described her daughter as, quote, joyful, loving, and warm, and Ellen had the megawatt bright smile to go with her sweet and kind personality. Her periodontist father made the distinction to a Penn Live piece in 2019 that, quote, Ellen had a great smile, not a big smile. She had a great smile. 
She was active when it came to athletics. Her parents chalked that up to her competitive nature, whether she was playing on her softball team or chipping balls on the golf course. When she wasn't on the field herself, she loved doing sport things, as Dr. Greenberg put it with her dad. Together, they were a sports enthusiast father-daughter duo who could often be counted on to spend their weekends at a football or baseball game, depending on the season. Sandy said that Ellen was, quote, a well-rounded child and is said to have, quote, loved fashion and liked to cook. So her various other interests kept her busy with her calendar full of friends and other social activities. By all accounts, she was a friendly, outgoing girl, one who made friends wherever she and her infectious smile, bright blue eyes, and bubbly personality went. All in all, the family of three shared as suburban a life as possible in Harrisburg, with weekends spent at the Bethel Temple, at a football game, or entertaining any number of Ellen's friends. When the time came, Ellen enrolled in Penn State University, and her engaging personality helped her land a spot working as a lionizer as a student where she quote introduced football players and their parents to the campus and even helped out on the field alicia young one of her first friends on campus described ellen as someone who quote lit up the room when she came into it and it was well known that no matter what realm you were in from within ellen's life her hometown friends camp bunk mates college roommates you were bound to become friends with ellen's other friends all because of her Quote, she just made them all get along, and she was a leader in that respect, Dr. Greenberg recounted to Penn Live. It was a talent that few people have. Ellen graduated in 2002 with a degree in communications and intentions of becoming a speech pathologist. However, soon after graduation, she realized that that career path didn't seem to be the right fit for her and recognized that what she really wanted to do was teach. She enrolled at Temple University in Philadelphia, Philadelphia, taking night classes to earn the proper credentials in order to become a teacher. In the episode focused on Ellen's story for Oxygen series, Accident, Suicide, or Murder, friends recounted how Ellen was, quote, in her element teaching, and how she loved to share stories about the silly things that her elementary age students would say and do as she went through student teaching and then graduated to her own classroom. Ellen began teaching first grade at Juniata Park Academy, an elementary school located north of the Museum of Art in Philadelphia. She began, like postgrads do, to create a life for herself. Much like her own parents had back in 1978, Ellen was set up on a blind date by a friend with a man named Samuel Goldberg. Sam was 25 to her 24 years and worked as a television producer for NBC. Almost Immediately after meeting, they became an official couple. Alicia, Ellen's friend, remembered that there was never, quote, an awkward dating phase between the two, and they simply meshed so well that they were a great couple from the start. Her mother described Sam as charming. Friends said that Ellen couldn't stop gushing about him, and photos showed the two looking very much the picture of a couple in love. Within three years, and following a trip to California that ended in a proposal, the two were engaged to be married. By the end of 2010, Ellen seemed to have settled into the beginning stages of her adult life. At 27, she was engaged to a man that she loved, she enjoyed her teaching job, had recently gotten her master's in education with a certification in reading specialty, 
and she had created a home that she and Sam shared in the Philadelphia suburb of Maniunk. Life seemed good. Life seemed easy. And then, as the new year of 2011 approached, something seemed to change. Ellen seemed to change. At the end of 2010, the once bubbly, outgoing, happy-go-lucky Ellen was different. Reports made after her death indicated that she had become, quote, anxious, insecure, not sure of herself, not liking how she felt. But for whatever reason, no one can say. Her unusual behavior extended outwardly too. Friends and colleagues noticed Ellen's newfound anxiety. Alicia Young, again, one of Ellen's closest friends, remembered that during this time, Ellen was, quote, feeling anxious, she was stressed out about work, and she was having trouble sleeping. Ellen claimed that the bulk of her worries were due to school. The vague one-word answer that she passed off to several people in her life without elaborating more than that whenever anyone asked. Anytime anyone really pressed, she would just say that she was simply worried about her teaching responsibilities and getting her grades in on time. But there were other odder instances of Ellen's behavior that caught her loved one's eyes as well. Her father noticed more than once that Ellen began deferring to her fiance to make decisions for her. In an interview, Dr. Greenberg shared that, quote, everything was, I'll have to check with Sam. I'll have to see what Sam says. Behavior that didn't suit the Greenbergs, typically gung-ho and self-assured daughter. Ellen's unexplained anxiety became so all-consuming that at one point, she asked her parents if she could move home to Harrisburg. The request came as a shock to her parents. To Penn Live, Dr. Greenberg shared that, quote, he thought she had some kind of nervous breakdown. She didn't want to stay in Philadelphia. She wanted to come home. And she was not the same person. She was not in control. Her parents tried to ascertain what was so wrong in Ellen's life, but she used the same excuses as she did with her friends. Her father stated that, quote, she played it off that work was too much, but when the teacher who took on Ellen's class saw her books and markings, she said everything was perfect. In the eyes of her parents, it seemed clear that something was deeply wrong, but they didn't want their daughter to make a decision that she would later come to regret. So they came to a sort of compromise. Before Ellen could quit her job and move back to Harrisburg, they asked her to see a professional to begin sorting out her newfound anxiety before making such a drastic change in her life. At the beginning of January 2011, Ellen had connected with a local psychiatrist and became a new patient of Dr. Ellen Berman. During the first meeting on January 12th, Dr. Berman quickly realized that Ellen had, quote, severe anxiety that she'd been struggling with for roughly two months. Her story about where it stemmed from didn't change much from the version that she had told her friends, but Ellen did offer up some more details to Dr. Berman. Notes that were later shared with police showed that Ellen had shared that she was, quote, having difficulty with work and felt pressure, possibly due to the fact that her, quote, school district had changed certain regulations. She also shared with Dr. Berman that she had some, quote, difficulty with particular students and didn't know whether to quit or to work through it. She had seemingly all good things to say about her relationship with Sam, though, and denied that he'd ever been abusive towards her. 
Initially, after their first meeting, Dr. Berman prescribed Zoloft, along with a low dose of Xanax. Zoloft is the commercial name for the antidepressant drug sertraline, which is an SSRI. Zoloft is often seen prescribed to treat major depressive disorder, compulsive obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, panic disorder, and social anxiety disorder. Sertraline has not, it should be noted, been approved for the treatment of generalized anxiety disorder, but in doses lower than 200 milligrams, patients looking to treat more minor iterations of anxiety disorders have often been prescribed a 25 milligram to 50 milligram daily dosage of sertraline. Nausea, ejaculation failure, insomnia, diarrhea, dry mouth, synomalance, dizziness, tremor, and decreased libido are often the commonly experienced negative side effects from sertraline. Xanax, on the other hand, is a different class of drug than sertraline. Formerly known as alprazolam, Xanax is a short-acting tranquilizer most commonly used in short-term management of anxiety disorders, specifically panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, moderate to severe anxiety, and panic attacks. Common side effects include sleepiness, depression, headaches, feeling tired, dry mouth, and memory problems. The way that the combination of a Zoloft and Xanax prescription has been framed to me in a medical sense is that Zoloft, taken daily, is your maintenance support. While in instances of severely increased anxiety or during a full-blown panic attack, utilizing prescribed Xanax is seen as a big gun temporary solution. I say that because in the spirit of transparency, this is how my own doctor described the idea behind such a prescription pairing when I was first prescribed Zoloft with a Xanax backup. However, as we all know, every person responds differently to treatments and medications. It's unclear if Ellen was following that rather common prescription of daily Zoloft paired with Xanax as needed, or if her situation was something different with perhaps the Xanax being a daily component of her prescription plan as well. For whatever reason though, the Zoloft and Xanax prescriptions didn't fit her needs, and she returned to Dr. Berman on January 17th. Some reports indicate that at the beginning of her treatment, Ellen had been uneasy about taking medications prescribed by her psychiatrist. The stigmatization of mental health and utilizing prescription medications was much more prevalent in 2011 than it is today. However, Ellen seemed to overcome her hesitations and was ready to try another prescription after her first five days of the sertraline and the Xanax didn't seem to work for her. On the 17th, Dr. Berman noted that in one portion of her notes about their appointment, Ellen would quote, start thinking about everything else, perhaps indicating part of how her anxiety manifested and spiraled. But the other note that Dr. Berman made that day needed no interpretation. It was just two words, not suicidal. After the January 17th appointment, Dr. Berman switched Ellen onto a different combination of medications, Ambien to help her sleep and Clonopin to help manage the severity of her anxiety. Known commercially as Ambien, the drug Zolpidium is primarily used for the short-term treatment of sleeping problems, which Ellen had indicated that she had been suffering from. It can be used for both improving sleep onset, sleep onset latency, and simply staying asleep. The most common adverse effects of short-term use include headache, drowsiness, dizziness, and diarrhea. 
Sometimes the phenomenon known as an ambient hangover can take place the following day, wherein ambient users experience sleepiness, impaired cognitive function, and impaired motor function. Those who use Ambien long-term can experience different side effects. Anecdotally, the drug is known to cause hallucinations, sleepwalking, or can even cause users to perform routine tasks all while sleeping. Clonopin, or clonazepam, is primarily used to treat seizures, panic disorders, and muscle disorders like restless leg syndrome, bruxism, which is more commonly known as excessive teeth grinding or jaw clenching, and akathisia. It is a tranquilizer and its effects can start to be felt within one hour and last between six and 12 hours after taking it. The most common side effects are sedation and impaired motor function. Less common side effects might include confusion, irritability, aggression, loss of libido, dizziness, and hallucinations. The combination of Ambien and Clonopin seemed to help Ellen as she texted her mother to say that she felt much better than she had in some time after starting the prescription plan. Two days after writing the prescription, she was checking in with Dr. Berman, who noted on January 19th that Ellen was, quote, way better. A week later, though, Ellen would be dead, and the local police would be claiming that she had taken her life herself. The morning of January 26th, 2011, was a snowy one. A winter storm had been making its way across the area and announced itself fully in Philadelphia by the 26th. While heading into work, Ellen called her mother and the two had a, quote, perfectly pleasant conversation, according to Sandy. Nothing by anyone's estimation was out of the ordinary. As the morning turned into the afternoon, the snow showers had turned into heavier, denser snow that left students and teachers alike wondering if they would be dismissed earlier than usual. At 12 p.m., Ellen was texting a fellow teacher friend about the likelihood of an earlier dismissal. The friend sent a message saying, quote, yeah, you're getting out early. Ellen responded with a quick, quote, thank goodness text, and shortly after, schools across the Philadelphia area dismissed their schools early as the wintry weather worsened. Upon getting out early, Ellen filled up her car's gas tank and then returned to the Venice Lofts apartment building in the Maniunk neighborhood that she shared with her fiance, Sam. It has never been made clear exactly what time Ellen arrived home, if Sam was at the apartment when she arrived, or how, how all she spent the rest of her afternoon. At 4.45 p.m., Ellen's fiance, Sam, claimed that he told Ellen that he was heading to the gym that was located in the apartment building. Roughly 30 minutes later at 5.30, Sam returned. Only he found himself locked out. Neighbors later reported hearing Sam banging on the apartment door as he unsuccessfully tried to get back into the unit that he shared with Ellen. For the next hour, Sam made attempts to get into the apartment. He believed that Ellen was still in the apartment, so he sent a series of texts and at least one email to her from his cell phone to let her know that he was locked out. The text, at least in my humble opinion, went from annoyed to full-blown anger as Sam continued trying to get into the apartment. The email that he sent Ellen has never been publicly released, but these are the texts that he sent in succession while he was locked out. Text number one, hello. Text number two, open the door. Text number three, what are you doing? Text number four, I'm getting pissed. 
Text number five, hello. Text number six, you better have an excuse. Text number seven, what the fuck? Text number eight, ah. And text number nine, you have no idea. Somewhere during his door pounding and barrage of texts, Sam went down to the on-duty security guard who was working the front desk of the Venice Lofts. 67-year-old Phil Hanton was the only guard on duty that night. And when Sam asked Hanton to help him break the lock mechanism or simply help enforcing his way into the unit, Hanton declined. He simply said that doing so was against the building's policy. It's unclear how Sam's visit to the security guard fits into the timeline of the hour that he spent trying to get into the unit. But presumably, once he was told that Hanton wouldn't be able to help him, Sam returned to the unit and then, quote, forced open the door that had been locked by the activated switch bolt. Some reports indicate that Sam kicked the door down, while others leave the exact manner of Sam forcing his way into the apartment up for interpretation. By the time Sam finally got his way into the apartment, an hour had passed and it was after 6 p.m. As one investigator pointed out, quote, that's an hour since he started trying to contact Ellen. I don't know about you, but you're gone 30 minutes and you get back and the love of your life isn't responding. How long before you think there's something really wrong here? 10 minutes, 20 minutes, but an hour? You have to wonder what was going through Sam's head when he finally overcame the switch bolt lock. If you need a visual, that's the type of deadbolt lock system used by hotel rooms the world over. The kitchen for the sixth floor apartment was located right next to the front door, so Sam would have had a clear view into the room once he got inside. There were sliced fruit, oranges, and some blueberries that seemed to have been prepared to make a sort of fruit salad on the counter. The knife block located on the counter was turned over onto its side, and Ellen was slumped on the floor, propped limply up against the cabinetry. Who knows what was going through Sam's head at the time, but it's interesting to note two details of what he did next. Before he called 911 to report that something terrible had seemingly happened to his fiancée, he placed two other calls first. The first was to his parents, who quickly made their way over to the maniac apartment. And the second was to his uncle, who happened to be a lawyer and also made his way over to the maniac apartment. Sam's parents and his uncle were allegedly on their way to the Venice Loft Apartments before emergency services. Because it wasn't until 6.33 p.m. that Sam finally called 911. The 911 call in its entirety has, like many pieces of material evidence in this case, never been released to the public. And it's something that the Greenbergs have been fighting to have released for several years now. However, Guy D'Andrea, a former prosecutor for the Philadelphia DA's office, who has been assisting the Greenbergs with their own investigation, has heard the audio himself. He shared with the Philadelphia Inquirer what all the calls sounded like. Sam, quote, was saying, oh my God, oh my God, my fiance, there's blood. But he was completely calm. And the dispatcher keeps asking him to describe what's happening. And he's spending all this time telling them how he'd been to the gym and come back. Then the dispatcher tells him, you're gonna have to start performing CPR. She says, I'll walk you through it. He says, do I have to? 
It's like two or three minutes into performing CPR that he notices Ellen has a knife in her chest. You know, you're right there next to the body and it's not like a little paring knife, it's a butcher's knife. According to DeAndrea, Sam told the dispatcher, quote, she must have fallen on it. Seven minutes later, by 6.40 p.m., medical professionals had arrived on the scene and Ellen was pronounced dead. It was Sam's father who made the call to the Greenbergs, who were in their own snowed out home in Harrisburg, where he began the call with, quote, something terrible has happened to Ellie. The first two days of the investigation into Ellen's death proved to be a whirlwind. The day after Ellen had been found dead on January 27th, her autopsy was performed by a Dr. Marlon Osborne, who was the assistant medical examiner for Philadelphia at the time. Ellen was covered in 20 different stab wounds, and the final wound seemed to be the one to her chest, where the knife had been embedded and left. Dr. Osborne began labeling the stab wounds, starting with the letter A, and he only stopped when he reached the letter T. There were 10 stab wounds to the back of Ellen's neck, and one in particular was noticeably deep. What was interesting, at least to me, in reviewing the autopsy report was the differentiation between the stab wounds and their respective depths. The first three stab wounds to the neck were all between 0.2 and 0.3 centimeters deep. But when Osborne arrived at stab wound end, located on the back of Ellen's neck, it was noted that this wound was alarmingly deeper than the others, coming in at a depth of eight centimeters deep. The next wounds all resumed to being shallower. Stab wound O was 1.4 centimeters deep. Stab wound P was 2.1 centimeters deep. Stab wound Q clocked in at two centimeters deep. Stab wound R was 1.9 centimeters and stab wound S was 2.1 centimeters deep. Then there was stab wound T, which measured seven centimeters deep into her neck. It was located between the second and third cervical vertebra. It was noted to have, quote, incised the dura covering the spinal cord. These, however, weren't Ellen's only wounds. There was a, quote, cut wound to the back of her head, which measured 6.5 centimeters by 1.1 centimeter in length, and she had multiple wounds to the front of her chest and her abdomen. These wounds were strange, as several experts later noted, and what was strange about them was that the stab wounds went through her clothing, as opposed to the more, quote, traditional route of lifting up or removing clothing before stabbing. Ellen had eight stab wounds to her chest, and stab wound E was the one in which the knife had been left embedded into her chest. According to the autopsy report, stab wound E, quote, extended for 10 centimeters through skin and muscle and created a 2.4 centimeter defect to the aortic arch and incised the upper left lung, causing its pericardial sac and pleural cavities of the right and left to fill with liquid and clotted blood. She also had a noticeably deep wound to the right side of her abdomen, which, quote, extended six centimeters into the skin and muscle of the abdominal wall and subsequently caused injury to her liver. These wounds, the ME noted, required a certain type of force to inflict, a certain type of force to break through not only the skin, but also through muscles and organ systems. 
Not only was Ellen's body riddled with stab wounds, but stranger still, she was also covered in bruises all over her body in various stages of healing. On her right upper arm, she had a bruise that was three by four centimeters in diameter. Below that on her right forearm was a three by 1.5 centimeter area of three different round contusions. The right lower quadrant of her abdomen was marked by a 3.3 by 3.5 centimeter contusion. Her right thigh, meanwhile, had a vertical row of differently sized bruises. There was a 2.5 by 3 centimeter bruise, a larger 4.5 by 3 centimeter one, and still a larger one on her thigh that clocked in at 5 by 6 centimeters. Below the bruising on her thigh, just above her right knee, she had another area of three round contusions that measured in total 4.5 by 3 centimeters. Some of the bruises appeared older in that they were in a different stage of healing while others appeared, quote, fresher. But it needs to be said that you can't necessarily date how old a contusion bruise is. The Greenberg's lawyer, Joe Podraza, stated that despite loving athletics and sports, Ellen wasn't involved with any contact sports herself at the time of her death. Her parents and none of her friends could think of any activities that could have even begun to offer some sort of explanation for these seemingly inexplicable bruises. Ambien and Clonopin, the medications that Ellen had been prescribed, listed unusual bruising only as an exceedingly rare side effect. And given that Ellen had been using the medications less than two weeks, it seemed unlikely that her prescriptions had anything to do with the bruising. The toxicology report performed alongside her autopsy showed that the drugs were present in her system at the time of her death. Toxicologist Lisa Mundy reported the findings on February 8, 2011, and concluded that there were only trace amounts of zolpidem, otherwise known as Ambien, in Ellen's system, and the clonazepam, the clonopin, was present, but it was in the amount that Ellen had been prescribed. The strangeness of the stab wounds paired with the bruising, which it should be noted if you didn't catch it, all were only on her right side, begged a pretty simple question. What the hell had happened to Ellen Greenberg? On January 28th, Ellen's funeral was held in Harrisburg at Temple Bethel. Just moments before the service was to begin, the news about the Emmy's ruling broke. The cause of death? Multiple stab wounds. And the manner of death, according to Dr. Marlon Osborne, was being labeled a homicide. Ellen's father delivered the news to the many people gathered as he gave his only daughter's eulogy, sharing point blank with the mourners that Ellen had been murdered. The Philadelphia police, however, had a different perspective. One that they shared with the public the very next day. The day after Ellen's funeral, the Philadelphia Police Department, in a rather unprecedented move, publicly commented on the Emmy's ruling, stating that, quote, the death of Ellen Greenberg has not been ruled a homicide. Homicide investigators are considering the manner of death as suspicious at this time. Further commenting claimed that the police believed the ME had, quote, rushed to a judgment and that they, instead, 
believed Ellen's death was a suicide. Stephanie Farr, a reporter in Philadelphia who conducted extensive research into Ellen's case, stated to Oxygen that, quote, to this day, I have never since seen the police department publicly challenge the medical examiner's office, their findings in the press. It would only be the first of many contradictions and challenges raised by the Philadelphia police when it came to their investigation into Ellen's death. Police believe that the ME's ruling, quote, directly contradicted the initial findings of the police investigators. Findings, it should be noted, that they had only been working with for three days at this point. From the beginning of their investigation, it has since been made quite clear that the Philadelphia police looked to be working under the assumption that the case was an instance of suicide before they had actually concluded their investigation. The investigator's primary source of this belief came because they said that there was no sign of forced entry and Ellen didn't have any defensive wounds on her body. As one investigator shared with Oxygen, when it comes to a matter of homicide, quote, you can expect to see fight or flight or both, and we saw none of that. However, the circumstances of the suicide theory as it relates to Ellen's case were so unique most law enforcement officials stated that they had never seen a case like this, and many still haven't. As former Pennsylvania Attorney General Wapler Cohen stated that, in an instance of a woman stabbing herself multiple times, this is one that he claims, quote, is not how people commit suicide. When Ellen's family and friends learned the police believed that she had died by suicide, they were all stunned. Ellen's mother claimed that, quote, suicide was the farthest thing from Ellen's world, and that even though she had been struggling with anxiety, she was still, quote, functioning, but stressed. Erica Hamilton, one of Ellen's closest friends, reiterated that Ellen, quote, felt anxious and overwhelmed about her teaching and planning the wedding. The wedding, which was planned for later in the year on August 13th, 2011, was part of the last communication that Ellen had with the majority of her loved ones. Just four days before she died, she had sent out the save the dates for their August nuptials. In raising their arguments against the police's belief, a line seemed to be drawn in the sand between the Greenbergs and the Philadelphia police. The Greenbergs have since stated publicly that investigators didn't communicate with them as they moved forward with their investigation and instead, quote, kept them in the dark. As the police continued to push back against the ruling of homicide, more pieces of evidence began to come to light, and they only continued to paint a strange image of the night that Ellen Greenberg was found stabbed multiple times alone in her locked apartment. Upon arriving at the Venice Lofts on the night of the 26th, Philadelphia police never formally set up a crime scene perimeter, and they never fully secured the scene before they left the Maniunk apartment. Sure, they questioned neighbors who reported that they hadn't noticed any disturbances that night beyond Sam's pounding on the door. And of course, they questioned Sam too, with his attorney uncle by his side. The night of Ellen's death, he was taken to a police station where he relayed again how he had gone down to the gym only to return shortly after to find himself locked out. He stated that the security guard, Phil Hanson, had been with him when he managed to finally break into his apartment. 
As far as Sam could see, nothing had been disturbed or stolen from the apartment. Surveillance cameras and key fob records backed up most of the statement, as everyone on the recorded videos from the lobby that night were all accounted for, in that they were all apartment residents. There were, however, no surveillance cameras stationed on the sixth floor where Sam and Ellen lived that could be used for full corroboration. After being questioned, Sam was released and never formally considered a suspect. It has been reported since then that additional attempts made by investigators to speak with him have all been declined. With Sam's testimony, the police began to gather what they considered their supporting evidence for the suicide theory. These pieces of evidence included the fact that the balcony for their sixth floor apartment was covered in undisturbed snow, so the police posited that no one had broken in through the balcony. The front door being deadbolted, as had been told to them by Sam, was another key piece of evidence, since police believed it was clear that Ellen had been alone in the apartment when she turned her knife on herself. And in terms of the knife, forensic testing showed that only Ellen's DNA was on the knife that was lodged into her chest. The other piece of evidence that police used for their promotion of the suicide theory was Ellen's own anxiety. To put it even more plainly, Philadelphia police used Ellen's documented recent struggle with anxiety to bolster their interpretation of events, and they created this suicide theory before the ME had even returned his ruling on manner of death. As Tom Brennan, the Greenberg's private lead investigator stated, quote, they came in, looked around, said suicide, and left. Three months after Ellen was found dead in her locked apartment, after mounting pressure from Philadelphia police, the medical examiner finally buckled and said the same thing too. Ellen's manner of death was changed from homicide to suicide. And it's here following the Emmy's decision to reverse his ruling, that things surrounding Ellen's case only got stranger. In an effort to get confirmation for their theory that Ellen had died by suicide, Philadelphia police approached Dr. Lucy Rourke Adams to perform an examination on the portion of Ellen's spinal column that had been saved to see if the wounds had severed the spinal column and caused paralysis. Dr. Rourke Adams is a pioneer in the field of neuropathology, and she had long worked as a, neuro, a senior neuropathologist for CHOP, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She'd also been known to assist and consult with the medical examiner's office on cases, since they themselves did not have a neuropathologist on staff, and this is how she was approached to assist on Ellen's case. Specifically, Dr. Rourke Adams was asked to examine stab wound T, the seven centimeter deep injury that was located between the second and third cervical vertebra. Though it cut through the dura protecting the spinal cord, the question investigators had for Dr. Rourke Adams was if the injury had actually damaged the spinal cord. It was posited that if Ellen had in fact been wielding the knife and stabbed through to the spinal cord in such a position that she would have either lost consciousness or become paralyzed from inflicting such damage. The police wanted to prove otherwise. Within the autopsy reporting, it was stated that stab wound T and any resulting damage to the spinal cord, quote, would not have incapacitated the decedent. Further along in the autopsy report, 
there is one line reflecting the work that Dr. Rourke Adams did on behalf of the Emmy's office in Ellen's case. It says simply, quote, neuropathologist Dr. Lucy Rourke Adams examined the spinal cord and concluded there is no defect of the spinal cord. This, to police, was all the proof that they needed to put further down their theory that Ellen, in some sort of mental health crisis, had taken the knife that she was using to prepare a fruit salad and stabbed herself in the neck, head, chest, and abdomen 20 times, and that none of the wounds were deep enough to damage her spinal cord, and thus she had continued to stab herself, concluding with lodging the knife in her chest in a 45-minute span when her fiancé had left the apartment. This, police believed, was the course of events that took place on January 26, 2011. When Dr. Osborne changed his ruling from homicide to suicide three months after his initial findings in support of this theory, no one thought to tell the Greenbergs before the change was made. Ellen's mother told Oxygen that the day the police fully swayed the Emmy to change the manner of death from homicide to suicide was the day, quote, I realized I wanted Ellen's name cleared. It was also the day that the Greenbergs took the investigation into their daughter's bizarre death into their own hands. The Greenbergs have admitted that for a brief period of time following Ellen's death, they could have believed that she had died by suicide. Everyone in Ellen's inner circle was well aware of the current struggle that she had been having with her anxiety. But it was when her parents began their own investigation that they fully realized how unlikely it was that their daughter had died by suicide, especially when they learned of all the missteps and mistakes that the Philadelphia police had made. As we know, before Ellen died, she had begun seeing a local psychiatrist to help manage her newfound anxiety that she claimed from stemmed from her work as a teacher. She saw Dr. Ellen Berman three times in the month of January and Dr. Berman prescribed a regimen of Ambien and Clonopin to provide medicated relief for Ellen's lack of sleep due to her anxiety and to generally combat her anxiety. Ellen's cousin, Kathy Schwab, shared that during one of their last text conversations, Ellen was pleased with her new medication, saying, quote, the medication is working, thank goodness. Two weeks before she died, Sandy visited Ellen in Philadelphia, and she commented that she didn't think that there was anything extraordinary or otherwise worrisome about her daughter's anxiety at the time. Mother and daughter discussed Sam's birthday, which would be the first week of February, and what Ellen was getting him for a present. Ellen had already made reservations for a Friday night dinner the next week to celebrate the occasion. And on January 19th, a week before Ellen died, her psychiatrist noted emphatically that her new patient, quote, was not suicidal in the notes from what would be their final session. Anecdotally, there were no signs or indications that Ellen had any sort of suicidal ideation. Certainly, she had never expressed anything of the ilk to anyone in her life, but the Greenbergs knew that they needed more than passing commentary and stories on their side, which is how they began to assemble some of the brightest minds in the forensic world and some of the most dogged investigators of the law enforcement realm to help find truth and justice for their daughter. Tom Brennan has been the Greenberg's lead investigator since 2012. He's a 25-year veteran of the Pennsylvania State Police. He trained at the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, and he's assisted in over 800 homicide investigations. 
It is Brennan's belief that Ellen was a victim of a blitz attack and that she, quote, never had the opportunity to defend herself. There was enough strangeness surrounding the crime scene, or lack thereof, and the overall police investigation to make Brennan pause. Certainly, as he put it, quote, I have never seen or heard of a case where someone is preparing food just prior to committing suicide. So the family, led by Brennan, began re-examining all of the evidence themselves. What first struck Brennan was the scene of Ellen's death and Ellen herself. For someone who had been stabbed 20 times in areas known to bleed heavily when injured, there was a distinct lack of blood at the entire scene. If ever you've been hit in the head or run into a corner as a child, you know that head wounds in particular are known to bleed profusely. And Ellen had sustained a deep cut to the top of her head. And yet, there was nowhere near the amount of blood on the scene that one would expect to see. There was a pattern of blood that did catch the eye of Brennan and other experts that joined the Greenberg's team. Ellen was found seated upright on the kitchen floor, with most of her upper body leaning against one of the cabinets and her head facing down. And yet, there was a line of blood that ran, quote, horizontally from nostril to the back of her ear. No drag marks or dripping, just a straight line of blood. A line of blood that seemingly defied gravity. Because again, Ellen was sitting vertically and this stream of blood ran horizontally. Dr. Henry Lee, the famous forensic scientist, also assisted with analyzing the scene of Ellen's death. Given the distinct lack of blood anywhere outside of the kitchen, Dr. Lee wrote in his concluding report that not only did the type of wounds convince him that the case was a homicide, but he believes, quote, the bloodstain patterns are consistent with the homicide scene. According to his analysis, quote, those bloodstain patterns indicate that Ellen was standing when she received her initial injuries, causing blood to drop on the sink, counter cabinet, and floor. Two separate stains on the cabinet show a wiping pattern from right to left and then downward. There were also blood spatters on the top of the Ugg boots that Ellen was wearing at the time, which added further credence to the belief that Ellen was standing when the stabbing began. Dr. Lee concluded that, quote, the number and types of wounds and bloodstain patterns observed are consistent with a homicide scene. Armed with the lack of blood on the scene and Lee's assessment, Brennan approached the Philadelphia police to ask what type of crime scene analysis had been done on the night of January 26th. And they told him there hadn't been one. Not only that, but they never even performed a luminol test to see if there had been blood elsewhere in the apartment that someone might have cleaned up. The entire apartment, actually, had never been secured and protected as a crime scene it later came to be known. After Ellen's body was removed and Sam was taken to the station for questioning, there wasn't an officer placed on duty to guard the scene. And when the officers left the scene, they simply left the apartment entirely unprotected, open for anyone to gain access to, which coincidentally, Sam's attorney uncle and one of his cousins did the next day. In their cursory search of the scene, the police maintained that there was no suicide note and there was nothing left behind on Ellen's computer that indicated any suicidal ideation.
However, they maintained fervently that the locked door from the inside of the apartment was the surest sign of a suicide. And it's now that I think we need to talk about this lock, because in my opinion, the lock itself is a completely moot point. As I said earlier, this supposedly infallible locking mechanism that was used in the Venice lofts was the same type of lock that you can find on the inside of a hotel door. The long bar with a little ball at the top that latches just so. This was not the dead bolt that the police had made it out to be. No, this is a lock that you can pretty easily actually lock and unlock from the outside. There are a number of YouTube videos that show you how easily that this can be done, unlocking these types of locks from the outside. You can use things like a hanger or a credit card to MacGyver your way around it if you've got the time, the interest, or simply the need to do so. What's more than that was that there was only one person who could even say that the door had ever been locked. And that was Sam Goldberg. No one has ever been able to actually back up his assertion that the door was locked from the inside. What's odd about saying that is that there should be someone who can back this up. Because as we know, Sam told the police officers who questioned him that night that Phil Hansen, the security guard on duty, had actually joined him up on the sixth floor when he, quote, kicked in the door. Except Phil Hanton said that that never happened. Phil Hanton claims that he never left his post that night and that he did not ever go up to the sixth floor with Sam. Guy DeAndrea, the former DA prosecutor who has assisted with the Greenberg's private investigation, spoke with Phil Hanton, who had an additional viewpoint from his experiences that night. According to DeAndrea, quote, the security guard said that the thing he noticed as odd was that Sam kept telling him that he had been at the gym, but he wasn't wearing sneakers. He was wearing regular boots. These boots also lead us back to the lock, if you'll believe it. Sam told officers that he, quote, kicked in the door to finally open it after an hour of otherwise unsuccessfully gaining access to his allegedly locked apartment. After reviewing the photos of the door that were taken that night, investigators for the Greenbergs all wonder if, again, that is actually what took place that night because of how decidedly undamaged the lock was after allegedly being kicked in by the force of a full-grown man. As Tom Brennan explained, quote, there is no way that a lock like that can be kicked in without it coming off the door or the door frame. But the only damage was one missing screw. To say that the investigation was closed-minded and focused solely on one outcome would be polite of me. Because as Brennan later put it, what actually it was, was quote, a complete lack of basic police work. Other experts were also approached to analyze the scenes of Ellen's death, including her wounds. Dr. Sarah Wecht, reviewed all of the materials of Ellen's case and concluded in 2012 that the manner of Ellen's death was, quote, strongly suspicious of homicide, especially due to the location of the wounds. He also noted how unusual such a manner of suicide was and how multiple stab wounds are typically indicative of homicide. Forensic neuropathologist Dr. Wayne Ross also offered an analysis of the evidence 
and he went so far as to note injuries that seemingly went unnoticed by the medical examiner. After studying the organ tissue, seeing photographs, autopsy photos, and the autopsy report, Dr. Ross reported that he found evidence of manual strangulation that wasn't listed in the autopsy report. Some of his notes included, quote, mark over the front of the neck that was consistent with a fingernail, multiple bruises under the neck and in the strap muscles over the right side of the neck, and that he believed the patterns were compatible with a manual strangulation. Dr. Ross also directly contradicted the findings of Dr. Lucy Rourke Adams when it came to the spinal cord injury via stab wound T. He believed that, quote, an injury like that would have led Ellen to have severe pain, cranial nerve dysfunction, and traumatic brain signs, as well as numbness, tingling, and irregular heartbeat. In 2016, it was actually discovered that the portion of the spinal cord was still in storage at the ME's office. So the Greenbergs arranged to have it retested to see if Rourke Adams' claims could be backed up or if the spinal cord had, in fact, been damaged. It took a year for the results to come in, but when they did, they were shocking. According to the 2017 report on the spinal cord examination, quote, when the knife entered, it severed the spinal cord and the wound track went up into the brain, causing hemorrhaging. The victim would not have been able to inflict any other wounds on herself after that. In layman's terms, Ellen's spinal cord had been severed and her brain was pierced by the deeper wounds to her neck via stab wound T and stab wound end. After her spinal cord was severed, she, quote, could have neither defended nor harmed herself after those blows. When the Greenbergs asked to review Dr. Rourke Adams' report to compare and contrast after receiving this 2017 report, they were met with an even bigger shock. There was no report from Dr. Rourke Adams. No report was in the homicide unit. No one in the Emmy's office had it and it wasn't in the DA's office. When reached out to directly, Dr. Rourke Adams confirmed that she did work as a consultant for the Emmy's office, but she didn't remember conducting the exam or consulting on Ellen's case. She had no bill of her services being rendered, had no report of her own, and so she concluded that she could not say for certain if she had ever done the exam at all. And yet, the very basis for changing Ellen's manner of death had been made on this so-called exam by Dr. Rourke Adams, as listed in the autopsy report. Still, however, despite all of these contradictions, the police claimed suicide. And they said that this time, they had the Google searches to back it up. Weirdness only compounds weirdness when it comes to this case. And the existence of Google searches alluding to Ellen having suicidal ideation is one of the weirder instances in this case. Because these predated searches somehow went unnoticed during the initial investigation. Police documentation from 2011 claimed that searches were conducted on Ellen's computer and nothing indicative of suicide had been found. Similarly, the FBI also searched Ellen's laptop in 2011, and they also found nothing to indicate that Ellen had been considering suicide 
or had ever even searched anything related to suicide. But as soon as pieces of evidence start piling into a mound of questions debating the efficacy of the police's investigation into Ellen's death, wouldn't you know it? The Philadelphia police suddenly had their own pile, a pile of searches that they claimed Ellen made in the weeks before her death and that these searches had a decidedly suicidal bent to them. Dated on December 18th, 2010 at 2.38 p.m., a Wikipedia page for, quote, suffocation, and another one for, quote, suicide methods was accessed on Ellen's laptop. Following these two hits, other searches included, quote, sex.fantasy.death and, quote, model.death. Other searches for, quote, Twitter bath death, quote, girl electrocuted to death trying to Twitter in the bath, and, quote, quick suicide were also noted in the laptop's history. Someone had also accessed web pages called National Euthanasia, a Dangerous Weapon, and Religion slash Theology slash Painless Suicide. All of these searches started and ended on the same date, December 18th. On December 9th, someone searched, quote, Zoloft, then Prozac side effects benefits, and Sertraline. January 12th, as a reminder, was the first time that Ellen met with Dr. Berman, who's a psychiatrist, who first prescribed her a regimen of Zoloft and Xanax to manage her anxiety. The medical name for Zoloft is, in fact, sertraline. No one has ever been able to determine who exactly was conducting these searches, both on December 18th and on January 9th. No one has ever been able to explain how such seemingly crucial searches went unnoticed by the Philadelphia police and, of course, the FBI. However, despite this so-called bombshell, the police weren't and really won't ever be able to submit these magically discovered searches into evidence because technically the searches can't be considered evidence since they were removed from the appropriate chain of custody. Eagle-eared listeners will recall that I shared that Sam Goldberg's attorney uncle and one of his cousins entered the Venice Lofts apartment on January 27th the day after Ellen's death. They did so with no problem or prevention because the Philadelphia police hadn't secured the scene as the crime scene that it was. Allegedly, the two Goldberg relations told the security guard on duty that they were accessing the apartment in order to get a suit for Sam to wear for Ellen's funeral. What they left with, though, were, according to Tom Brennan, Sam's laptop, Ellen's personal laptop, her work laptop, and her cell phone. And as Tom Brennan pointed out, Ellen's laptop wasn't protected by a password. Literally anyone could access it. Two days later, and three days after Ellen's death on January 29th, the police took possession of Ellen's things, her personal laptop, the work laptop, and her cell phone. By this time, the ME had declared Ellen's death a homicide. Somebody within the Goldberg family had apparently had access to Ellen's devices for three whole days before the police took the devices into custody. But because the laptops had been removed from the scene and had not gone into police custody directly, the chain of evidence had been broken. Nothing from the devices is ever supposed to be brought up as formal evidence in the case because of this lack of regard for the chain of custody. 
So why then would the police be waving around these so-called claims of Ellen's suicidal internet searches if they can't even use them as formal evidence? The answer seems as plain to me as why the police had so single-mindedly determined to have Ellen's case labeled a suicide. And that is because it is all a part of the narrative that was crafted that day. A narrative that protects from the lack of professionalism, lack of integrity, and lack of care that was demonstrated throughout the half-hearted investigation the police conducted into how Ellen Greenberg died. The more pressing question though is this, why didn't Ellen Greenberg get the proper investigation that her death still deserves? And those are only two of the many, many questions that still surround this baffling case of a woman who seemingly died while locked alone inside her apartment. Let's review some of the other questions that surround this case about Ellen Greenberg's mysterious death. Question number one, what actually happened during the afternoon of January 26, 2011? Was Ellen alone in the apartment when she returned from work or was Sam with her? Why have those details never been made public? No one can truly understand the way that the mind works to lead a person to suicide, but Ellen had just that day filled up her car with gas, sent out her wedding, save the dates four days prior, and she'd even booked reservations for a birthday celebration for Sam for the next week. So why did the police ignore these signs of Ellen's intention to live and instead focus on her recent struggle with anxiety to craft the suicide narrative? What was the catalyst for Ellen's recent bouts of anxiety? Why was she so insistent on one occasion that she wanted to quit her job and move back to Harrisburg? What was it about her job and school that was contributing so heavily to her anxiety? Was it really her struggle with certain students and new district policies that led to her anxiety? Or was something more seriously wrong at her workplace than she ever told anyone? This sounds morbid, but how long would it take for someone to die from multiple stab wounds? Is it possible that Ellen could have died in the 45 minute time frame that Sam allegedly went to the gym and returned? Or is it more feasible that she would have died in the hour and 45 minutes it allegedly took for Sam to leave the apartment and then get back into the apartment since he waited for an hour trying to get in? Did Sam actually go to the building's gym for a 45 minute workout? Or did he use his key fob to register that he'd been there? Why wasn't Sam wearing sneakers as the security guard pointed out? Why did it take Sam an hour before he actually tried to break into the apartment? Why did he keep telling the security guard that he had been at the gym so many times that evening? Why did Sam tell police that the security guard had been with him when he broke down the door when the security guard says that that never happened? Why did Sam call his parents and then his attorney uncle before calling 911? Why was Sam's word about the whole evening taken as the truth without investigators really further checking out his alibi? Was Ellen standing when the first stab wounds were inflicted? Is that something that can be indicated by the knife block that was seen turned over on the counter without reason? How did she come to be slumped against the kitchen cabinets?
Why didn't police do a luminal test on the scene when it was clear that something was off with the positioning of her body, at least in reference to the blood streak that ran horizontally across her face? Why was there such a lack of blood on the scene? Was Ellen's body moved after she died? If so, who moved her? And who cleaned up the crime scene? Why didn't the police create a crime scene out of the apartment? Why did they leave the apartment unattended to after leaving the scene? Why were Sam's uncle and cousin allowed back into the apartment the day after Ellen died? And why were they allowed to remove crucial pieces of evidence and thus destroy the chain of custody? Why didn't the police automatically take Ellen's devices into police custody? And how did the police originally claim that there was nothing on Ellen's laptop related to suicide, but then change their minds years later? Why did the police change their minds and admit that there were allegedly searches of suicide on Ellen's laptop? Were the searches actually made? Were they fabricated? Were they planted in the laptop's history? Did Lucy Rourke Adams ever work on Ellen's case? If she did, why is there no record of her work? And if not, how and why did the police manage to pretend that she had for so long? Why were the police so hell-bent on determining the circumstances of the case before concluding their investigation? Did they have a predetermination that they wanted to lead the facts to? Why did the police publicly disagree with the ME in a manner that they had never done so before? Why were the police so insistent that Ellen's death was a suicide? Was there something about her death that they didn't want to have to confront? Did the police purposely botch the investigation into Ellen's death? And if so, why did they botch the case? Or were they simply careless for no real reason? And if they were so careless, then how can the investigators on Ellen's case be held accountable for such grave mishandling? What is barring police from simply re-looking into the case when there have been so many missteps and missteps made so publicly? Why is the Philadelphia Police Department so adamant in their refusal to give Ellen Greenberg's bizarre death a full reinvestigation? What does it say about the Philadelphia police that they've refused to cooperate with Greenbergs for a decade now? Why don't the Philadelphia police want to see this case serve justice and done right? Is there something that the Philadelphia police know about the case that they don't want to come to light? Why is there such an air of strangeness around a case that should be simple to investigate? Why have there been so many missteps missteps at this point that almost seem purposeful. Who is protected by Ellen Greenberg's death being labeled a suicide? Did Ellen Greenberg take her own life? And if she didn't, then who murdered her? In 2018, the Greenbergs requested to have Ellen's case reopened by the state attorney general. A year later, in March 2019, the AG claimed that their office had, quote, conducted our own thorough investigation, and they said that the evidence supported the suicide theory based on texts and internet searches. Internet searches that we know should not have been able to be used due to their exclusion from the chain of custody. 
Even so, the state still closed the investigation. Seven months later, on October 15, 2019, the Greenbergs filed a civil lawsuit against the Philadelphia ME's office and the original ME, Dr. Marlon Osborne. The suit seeks to change the manner of death from suicide to homicide, or at least undetermined, citing new information. The suit also claims that Dr. Osborne admitted to changing the manner of death due to pressure and insistence from police. On the Greenberg side of this battle is a new technology that wasn't available to, to them at the time of Ellen's death, photogrammetry. Photogrammetry is able to create a 3D anatomical recreation of a corpse. It showed the size, the depth, and the length of each stab wound with the photogrammetry experts who created the model of Ellen's body, concluding that all of those wounds could not have been self-inflicted, particularly the ones on the back of her neck and the wound on top of her head. In January, 2020, the Greenbergs won their first victory in many years. Their civil suit is going before a jury. A Philadelphia judge within the Court of Common Pleas moved to allow the case to go to trial a trial that's actually scheduled to take place this year. A jury will deliberate over the evidence presented and determine if Ellen did die by suicide, as the city claims, or if she was murdered. And if someone has been walking free of charges for that murder for a decade. I think that's only part of what makes Ellen's case so unsettling and so unnerving. Not only is a woman's murderer supposedly walking free throughout the streets, but a woman's very real and very normal struggle with anxiety has been further stigmatized and utilized against her in order to paint a narrative that, simply put, does not seem to be the true narrative of the last night of Ellen Greenberg's life. And the biggest question at the end of all of this is, why? Why wouldn't police want to get to the truth about how Ellen Greenberg died? Why haven't the police put up a fight to give this case the careful and judicious handling that it deserves? If nothing else can be said about this case, it's clear though that the investigation was not done properly. From improper handling of the crime scene, standard police protocol going ignored, and bizarre behavior that begs deeper investigation of its own, Ellen Greenberg and her family have consistently been let down time and again by the Philadelphia Police Department. This year marks 10 years since the girl with a megawatt smile and love of teaching was brutally left for dead in her own apartment. Her story is not over, but I do think that this year, it's about time that the question of how Ellen Greenberg really died is finally answered and her memory as well as the diligent work of her parents on her behalf is put to peace and put to rest. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you all. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple podcast. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash podcast to see what level of support might be up your alley of interest. If you're not sure what level you'd like to start at, there's a 
no longer really new Patreon level, and it only costs $1. You can support Dawn the work that I do here for just a dollar a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode, as well as has access to exclusive content on the Patreon. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, which is all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasthellpodcast at gmail.com or head over to darkasthellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.